Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Brian and Jason here. And the title of this one is going to be called We Stand Alone Together. And there's a reason we're going down that journey is we are coming off the last podcast where we were talking about the difference between unity and conformity. And I wanted to get to something historically that has always been at the the core of breaking the back of tyranny. And why would we be talking about tyranny? Well, are we in tyranny? Well, I don't know. But the question is, could you identify it? And what would you do if that's what happened? There is a huge difference between unity and unifying together to do something and conformity. Conformity and unity are always at an ought with each other, yet the application of it often looks very similar. And so I really want to kind of break that down and look at what is the core of that, because if we could understand the core, we could understand what freedom really looks like and how do we utilize that for the benefit of others. So in the show Band of Brothers, which is a story of the 2nd Battalion in the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, the main highlight of that series was Easy Company. This is a documented story, and when you go and read the interviews and listen to the interviews of those that were a participant of this, it really is an amazing picture of what unity can do to break tyranny. They had a mountain in their training facility, and it was called Kurahi, and it was an Indian Cherokee name that meant, we stand alone together. And it's really a powerful statement because it, re- it brought to light the very power force of the individual who chooses to unite together and do something in a sense of unity, but it does not lose the heartbeat of the individual. It actually is the fuel to help other individuals so they're not stuck in a place of conformity. In other words, you owned your actions as an individual, even though you're offering it to the sense of a big group. You see this in pretty much any action movie these days, too. I mean, my wife and I have been taking a little bit of time the last few months to go through some of our favorite superhero movies. And you see this constant theme of an individual rising up. But many times, it's multiple individuals rising up to form a team and to do something. But if one of the individuals were to say, okay, I'm just gonna you know, shut up and try to be like this person and emulate what they do and their skills and their abilities, you don't have a team and it crumbles. And so we see this theme so often portrayed in our stories, in our movies, in our culture and things that we aspire to. And yet it's really weird that practically, I don't think we see this play out. I think people at large are looking to conform and what to conform to. And it's, it's kind of been this weird contrast in my mind. Why do we see this ideal portrayed that you as an individual need to rise up against all odds, you know, go against the grain if you need to be who you are. And that's, that's another thing that's really put out in our culture is be who you are, especially if it goes against the grain at times. And yet practically people are told to fall in line and conform because when someone does start to step out in something that is outside the norm, outside of the the traditional ideas of what our society says they should be doing, they're immediately cast out and chastised and told to fall back in line. And I honestly don't really know why that's such a contradiction. When it brings you back to this, this question, which did God use, conformity or the individual? Was God a was Christianity a conforming belief, or was the power of it in an individual belief? 
And it really, it, it becomes a wrestle. And we were talking a little bit earlier. You could go back and forth and you can almost see, well, that did have a benefit if we got everybody to conform this way. And there's a real danger if you let the individual have a choice. If you, if you let the individual just have their own decision-making capabilities, what is, what is, isn't that kind of dangerous? So even if you use this example of Easy Company, so it was Dick Winters who is, ended up being the, the commander and uh, led this unit, um, but started out as a lieutenant. And he was talking about, and many of the other um, members of Easy Company in the interviews said a very similar thing. They said, nobody forced you to do this. You volunteered. And it was the notion that you wanted to do something and you wanted to be with the best. And I thought this was very interesting that there was a conscription, a, a draft for World War II. But at the heart of most people, if you went into the small communities, that the moment Pearl Harbor event happened and Japanese attacked America, the American people rose up saying, we have to do something. You have all these different beliefs, backgrounds, uh, economic situations, all these different individuals that had a different independent life were now coming together for something bigger. And they said something interesting in one of the interviews that we didn't want to, we volunteered to go into a special forces unit because we didn't want to be stuck with the people that had to be there. They, they were afraid of their life if they had to be with someone who had to be there. They wanted to be with people that chose to be there, those whose heart was totally for this cause. And they, they went side by side with each other. You had different, some were Christian, some were Catholic, some were not. You had all these different belief systems. You had all these different thoughts, but they were unified around one idea. This is their free nation. And it was even Yamamoto the famous Japanese admiral, that when they attacked Pearl Harbor, he actually did not want to do this. And he, when the attack happened, it actually grieved him that Japan attacked Pearl Harbor because he says, we've awakened a sleeping giant. We've awakened something that we had no idea. And when you, when you affect a free people in a, in a, in a, a profound way and you affect their, their life of what establishes them it causes a unity to rise. And one more example of during the time of these interviews of these soldiers from Easy Company, he said the boys would line up to join. They would try to get their mom to sign them on when they were 17. They wanted to go fight for the freedom of this nation. But I want you to catch how powerful it was that people wanted to give their lives towards something, not because they had to, not because they were forced to, not because uh, if they didn't, they would be shamed. But in the very beginning, they wanted to because they wanted to keep their people free out of love for their nation. And I thought it was just a very interesting way how unity can bring in all of this. Now, once they were in the army, once they joined that forces, it was hard. They had to cut their hair the same way. They had it. It almost looked like they 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 were having to conform, but they were they were being unified by choice. And it wasn't easy. They didn't always like the lieutenant's decisions. They didn't always like the, the commander's decisions. But the army was training them. If we're, you're going to volunteer and be a part of this, you also have to work together so we can be one unit coming together. So it's this weird uh, paradigm that at one point you're being put in, but then you're being conformed into a way of thinking. But what we don't realize is if you were a Russian soldier at the time of World War II, 
you were just told you're going in. And you can move ranks, you can do different things. But the, the officers stood at the back of the line, often with rifles, to shoot those that would not go to battle. So it was almost a force paradigm. If they told you to march north and there was a marsh in front of you, you didn't think for yourself and march around the marsh. You went through the marsh, even if it killed you, because if you didn't, you would be killed for not moving forward. That's conformity at its heartbeat. Where every commander, every sergeant within their frame could make adjustments and tactics within the general scope of what they were doing. If they were to take a town and they have a different strategy, they could radio up, hey, we can go around. And or they would come up with new ideas, and there was so much ingenuity that came from the privates and the sergeants on the battlefield that shaped a lot of the victories in battle. Now, I'm not saying every commander operated from a spirit of unity. A lot of times that conformity would come back in, and you're just going to do it because I said to do it, and my pride was greater than that. But I want you to catch you're dealing with, we're still dealing with people. But the thing that the Russians and the Germans feared the most was the independence of the soldier. They were under one unit, they obeyed the commands, but they could also think for themselves. And that's where that saying, Kurahi, we stand alone together. Would you say that's the difference between the heroes in that context versus the people that were just kind of there? So someone signing up with that mindset of individuality and unity thinks that I'm going to fight this because they're attacking me and I can actually bring something to this versus someone who's pulled into it. That's just thinking, all right, if I just keep my head down and do what I'm told, maybe I can get out of this and then go back to what I think my life was before versus someone rising up and saying, there's a problem out here and I can actually take a part of responsibility in fixing it. But like you were saying, there were certain things they did have to conform to in a sense. They had to cut their hair a certain way, wear the certain uniform. They couldn't pick out a different shade of green on their uniform because they were expressing their individuality, but they were okay because they were unified versus people that were pulled into it. And that's a great example contrasting with the Russian army where it's, it's fear-based, there's a gun behind you, and you can really only motivate someone so far and so hard with that mindset. But if you have groups of individuals rising up in unity, I kind of look at it as, you know, if you were a medieval king and you were going to war and your people were great swordsmen, hand-to-hand close combat, they were fantastic at that. And a neighboring king, his people were amazing archers. It would be foolish of you to not want to come into a unified alliance with that king to go to war because what you can bring to the table and what his people can bring to the table will complement each other. But if you just try to raise up, you know, a thousand more of your people, you're only going to go so far. You can try to get his people to conform to your way of fighting and you'll probably fail. Say, just give me your people. I'll put a sword in their hand. No, they're meant to be archers. You need to put them in their proper place. And when they are united together and rising up, then you'll win the war. Yeah. And you brought up, you, tapped into something, the motivating factor behind the Russian Russian soldier was fear. In fact, when a Russian soldier, if they were taken as a prisoner, uh, many of them were, were taken by Germans into their prison camps. When the war was over, those Russian soldiers, officers, people that were vowed loyalty to Russia, were put into the gulags 
for retraining because they didn't want even the Germans, as much as you had one group that was the SS that was very dictatorial, very uh, conforming, a lot of the general Germans, soldiers and officers were just fighting for their homeland and were fighting for their families and were fighting for um, these things. And even the American soldiers, when they got back, they said, who knows, we might have been friends. But there was a, something that happened that caused a conflict that that they went at each other. So the general German soldier was a little bit more similar to an American soldier in the sense that they were fighting out of love for their country. Now, I'm not saying all of the units within German, like the SS unit and different ones, those were a whole different thought process. The problem is they controlled the, the, um, the, the, the dynamics of that. And so... But I, what we're trying to see here is the difference between conformity and unity in the power of the individual. And so one of the dynamics that we can see that becomes really important is when does being unified uh, cost and becomes conformity? When, when does that take place? And remember, there's two motives. So we talked about, again, you brought up the, the, the Russian being fearful. The American soldier was motivated by love for his family, for his brother, for his country, for freedom. There was a love there. He, he got to choose to do this. And when there's this choice in it, you may choose to let go of something for the sake of the person next to you, or you may choose to table something for the person next to you. That's, a, that's motivated by love. That is a powerful force versus if I don't do this, negative ramifications are going to come to me. And I actually use the person next to me for my own benefit, either to avoid punishment or to gain. So they become a tool to my benefit versus you offering. And the moment you lose the opportunity to offer yourself, you've been stripped to conformity. I mean, you just look at our, our current world. I mean, there's there's some interesting things starting to pop up in our current world. And when this whole first thing started and there was these kind of rules in place and actually they weren't rules, they were recommendations that we recommend doing this. I was all for it for the sake of, I want to take care of the person next to me. I want to kind of mitigate more mitigating fear than it was the concern over the virus itself. But how do we mitigate? How do we make this as peaceful as possible? But then there's always someone that wants to come in and take it further and they start isolating a group. And it's really caused my eyes to be open. At first, I thought, no, this could be a good thing. There's so much unity, and there is. But then what do you do when the, a little element comes in that actually shapes conformity? Like, there does come some very interesting questions. When does it become a problem when a certain group gets alienated and they're outlawed, but another group keeps to, gets to keep doing it? Like, why can't a church healthily meet together or meet in a parking lot or do do group separation if they're abiding by the guidelines that are set for protection yet the media doesn't get stopped from meeting the media gets to keep going to press conferences their right of the press doesn't get to stop they're still doing it in a healthy manner why does another the number one freedom 
why is there a push on that but not on everything else? I mean, why can't I walk into Walmart, go buy my goods because those are essential, and be around all these people, but I can't go over here and do this that's actually my essential freedom? It becomes a weird place. And again, I don't want to make this podcast about what you can do, what you can't do. I'm just saying if we get to the core, the moment the individual's ability to choose gets stripped and it becomes oppressive, we're crossing into some dangerous lines. And so how do we start identifying that? How do we, how do we get to that place where we can identify it and know when to act and when not to act? And I think that's very important. And it's not even just about this case. It's not even just about this pandemic. It's about this, this hidden war of conformity, of shaming someone, oppressing someone into an ideology versus out of love, lifting a person as an individual to make a choice and then they get to choose to unite. Man, that is a powerful force. We both need each other, but th those two motives, one is diabolical and one is absolutely liberating even though they may do a similar action. It's a really tricky thing to navigate. And that's why every situation is so nuanced and there's a lot of factors, but the principle underlining it can remain the same. So if you're faced with this choice and there's a, a pull between conformity and unity as an individual, one question to ask is, if I make this decision, how do I feel about it? Do I feel like I'm being pushed into conformity or do I feel confident that I'm the one making this decision? And then on the flip side of that, if you want to know if the people, the society, the system around you is trying to get you to conform or be unified, how do they react if you make a decision that goes against what they think you should do? And again, not trying to say you should test the waters and do things intentionally that are against recommendations to see how people react. That's pretty immature, but it is telling on how those around you react. Do they understand and support? Even if they don't understand, do they support? If not, then maybe they're looking for more conformity than individual unity. Because if I can't be confident in who I am by letting you choose what you want to do with your individuality, your freedom, thinking that you are acting in what you believe to be right, if I can't trust that, then I don't see you as an individual. I see you as a member of something that I need to kind of mold and maybe correct and move here and move there because I don't trust your ability to make a decision. I don't trust that you can actually make a beneficial decision for you or the people around you. And that's a really slippery slope to start on. It was in 1974 that they stopped the draft. It was right at the Vietnam War and um, we're not gonna get into the politics behind the Vietnam War because I could understand where there's a whole different process between conformity and uh different things as it, it came so world war ii is a much better example um but in 1974 they stopped the draft and it was when the rangers really leveraged this idea of leave no man behind and it it didn't just start there i mean it, it's been throughout all the military customs all the way back to pre-revolutionary war but it, it came to this uh this was a little clip from an article. When you have a conscript ar army and you can always replenish it by just adding more people, you really don't have to care about whether they're happy with what you're doing, with what they're doing. 
Now the military had to care about its soldiers as individuals. This was after 1974. Now the military had to care about its soldiers as individuals. And the idea that it would never leave them behind became something of a family bond. It's kind of a contract with the service. You promise to serve us. We promise never to leave you. And I thought that was a very interesting dynamic that they had a shift to because now the soldier as an individual mattered. See, when you could just mask and script, oh, we lost 10,000, get 10,000 more. They just became numbers. And honestly, World War I was much more like that of, of how they did battle. Not necessarily because they didn't care, but it was just throw mass of people into it. When it came to World War II and it... And, and going into different wars, it became more about smaller groups, more the individual. Let's don't do these big, broad mass tactics. Let's be, it costs too many lives to have a victory. So they started readjusting how those numbers, but it became because the individual started mattering more than the masses. And this was really big in, in uh, the Revolutionary War is they, they began doing more guerrilla warfare versus full frontal warfare because the British, that's how they did their warfare, but it would, I only needed a few people to do guerrilla tactics and I can wipe out an army. But they determined that wasn't an honorable way to fight. Well, that is, even within the battle tactics was conforming. In order to be honorable, this is the tactic that you needed to use. And so those type of rules were there, but they were like, hey, we only got 50 guys, you got 500, but if we hid in the woods and sniped at you from the woods, we can completely decimate your whole morale of the army and you would leave. So these kind of, the, the individual, because they didn't have the masses to throw at it, they only had individuals. So it's very interesting that even, even during World War II and, and even Vietnam and some of these other ones, if someone went down, your unit would spend as much time risking lives to get the body out because it did something for the morale. We don't leave people behind. You may not come back alive, but you're not getting left for the enemy. And I think this became very important to that whole process. So moving away from military, because I know some of you kind of look, go, okay, but we're not in a military thing. No, but you have to understand the thinking because it was Paul that told Timothy, understand the soldier. And it was very critical to Timothy operating because we need to understand the thinking and the blending of conformity to unity to the individual and how all those pieces play together. But it is the heartbeat of victory. So to shift gears, but keeping the same mindset, the same principle, are there things in church history, Christian history, where we've seen a shift from an individual-based, unity-based perspective into a conformity? And I think if you, if you take an honest look at a lot of things now, I mean, to be fair, I've seen great examples on both sides of this. So this is not to come against the church at large, even though I know that's trendy to do at times. And it's not to say there's no flaws in the church because that's also trendy to do at times, depending on who you're talking to, but take an honest look at how we perceive people in Christianity. Do we encourage individuality or do we expect conformity? I sat down for dinner with my family yesterday and it was interesting this I wanted to pose a question to them but I didn't really have an answer to it I really just I truly wanted to hear what did they think about it so I asked them what does Esther David Mordecai Gideon Caleb Joshua Moses Ruth Rahab the harlot Abraham Joseph Daniel Saul Peter John Stephen Jesus what did they all have in common 
what was the similarity between all of them? All completely different environments, completely different scenarios. Some were in a kingdom, some were outside of a kingdom, some were enslaved to a kingdom, some were in a lower class of life, some were in an upper class of life. What, what did they all have in common? You know, they brought up, well, they believed in God. This was true. So that would be a, a, the, the core belief, the core, uh, the creator was their, their source. So that was true. But what are some of the commonalities beyond the basic theological things that we would say about them? I'm kind of summarizing what they came up with. They all started in one role and were transformed into another role. They all made individual choices that went against the grain of the environmental customs. They all delivered or established a new way within their environment. And they were all transformed by a new thought that came from the creator, not the creation. And I thought that all of that was really good. Like there's something very similar. And so it's interesting throughout the Bible, it never talks about moving a mass. And whenever a mass or a, a general group of people needed to be delivered, God always found an individual. He always found an individual. And you could even see this, the great one is even when God says, we're going to wipe out all of Jericho, the whole city's going down, no one's surviving, nothing's coming out of it. And we'll do a podcast one day to under, to kind of maybe bring some understanding why that took place. But God wasn't just random and vileless and a mass murderer or nothing like that. But there was a reason behind it. But anyway, so they're going to wipe it out. So the spies go in. But there's this one woman who's a prostitute. Now, I don't know how we classify in our society what that person is. But it probably wouldn't be on the upper echelons of society. But she embraced the two spies because she believed in the God that they worshipped. And so she got favor. And so even though it says all the walls fell down when they marched, actually in Hebrews, it says her house that was on the wall was spared. So there was actually one wall that did not fall down in Jericho, and it was hers. And her belief stopped a greater thing. And it's interesting, she is the great, great, I don't know if three greats or two greats, grandmother of David, who was the, Jesus was the descendant from him. So Rahab the harlot not only spared her family, but she became one of the grandmothers of the lineage of Jesus and of King David. I think that's a powerful statement. She altered history. And the whole fact that she started out as a prostitute and someone chose her into a different role. She became a mom. She became a, a wife. She became part of a, a royal lineage that would bring forth kings. Man, that's a, that's a transition point, right? An individual altered this. And I think it's amazing that the Bible goes through individuals who believed, took a change of thought, and acted. And it cost her her normal life for a different life. And it really is the picture of transformation. And we see this all the way through 
the Old Testament, into the New Testament, even into uh, the book of Acts, were individuals in these and these acts that that they stood on a different thought and went against conventional wisdom of man versus a higher wisdom that was inspired and changed the course of history. But it seems like in our modern day, everything becomes more group. Paul says this interesting quote in Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. I like that word, scruples. We who are strong, our role is to help those who are not their scruples. In other words, their way of thinking may be a little more shallow or not as... Um, Maybe they don't understand enough yet, but they're they're working with what they understand. And we come to them, and it says this, let each please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. In other words, we come to those that are weak, not because we're greater to conform them, but to, the word edify is to lift them up into a higher position. So we that are strong go lower than them, lift them to a higher place so they can receive the insight, the perspective, and the enlightenment to make individual choices. He didn't say, you that are strong, conform those that are weak into a new idea, because then I'm making them think the way I think. And even though we all share, just like every character in the Bible had some similarities that they all shared, they all had a, a unique application a unique time in history, a, a unique, everything was unique, and we're all unique. We're all placed all over these different areas. But the moment when someone strong chooses to step in to lift, we are now offering ourselves. What does conformity want to do? They see anyone that they perceive or deem as strong, and we will take it from them. And now we will be the givers of it. But they're not giving of themselves, they're giving what they've robbed. They've given what they've taken. And if someone doesn't conform to that, they strip him and humiliate them and, and rob from them. Versus when I am free to be me and I am free to be an individual, I can let compassion flow and I choose to lift. You know, the outcome can look the same for a while, but it absolutely benefits the individual and it absolutely benefits the one giving because it doesn't strip, it lifts both of them. And this is the main difference in the heart. And you see this in soldiers. You see this in, uh, in, in good workplaces where you actually have to value the individual, not because if you don't, you're going to have this regulation against you, this regulation against you, this regulation against you, this regulation against you. I, I worked for, uh, there was a time I worked for Best Buy, and you would have a job opening. You already knew who you're going to hire because you've been training that person for the role. But in order to comply with, with human resources and the government mandates, you had to open up the interview to everybody. Now, there is two sides of this. I'm sharing the side from being a, a boss, wanting to hire someone. So you'd interview all these candidates, but you didn't have to hire any of them. You just had to go through this formality and do the interview and do the application. But everybody already knew who you were going to hire. It was already done. What would have been better is if I could just promote that individual, but because of the regulation, you had to go through this. Now think about it if you're on the other side of that. You see a new job opening and you want to go for that job. 
and you do the process and then you interview and you, you go through all the steps and you know you're the better candidate on paper. But this person has already selected who they want, but they have to go through the process. I don't know what's more humiliating. And so it, it's, it's very much like that. And I've been on both sides of that. And I, could be, I was frustrated on one side and I was frustrated on the other that we have to play this game when you already knew what you were going to do. Just give me permission to promote. But you couldn't do that to comply with all these rules. And so when conformity comes in, everyone finds loopholes to bypass the conformity. When unity comes in, it breaks all that. You're just thinking about the other person. And you can be honest and you can be transparent and you can work through that whole. Isn't that one of the downfalls of a, a heavily conformity-based mindset, I guess, is there's, there's going to be so much frustration from the people because you actually have to strip away their individuality that they already have. So in that same scenario, you've got the person in HR who's kind of running things or whoever is making those mandates that are put upon the manager who wants to do the hiring and the people that are wanting the job. Everyone below that top person is frustrated because their individuality and ability to make decisions based on what they know to be the best choice in the moment has been stripped from them. And that breeds frustration and resentment. Ultimately, there's an underlying resentment that gets built there or can be built there that will eat away at the core relationship with an organization that way. And I think there's, there's some application for that and how we look at each other as Christians and in the church. Now, there's also something in that mindset of conformity to where if you get someone to, I guess, convert to your way of doing things, there's, there's almost like a subconscious rush that you get from that because you have decided the best way to do it and they had to comply with it. And so now you've got someone underneath you. You've got someone in your group now because you brought them in and they saw the folly of their ways and they've accepted your way. And ultimately, even if your way was better, you're kind of you're kind of handcuffing yourself and them because you didn't elevate them into that you drug them into it and so now you've got someone who's going to be more compliant but ask any entrepreneur or any any ceo do they want a bunch of yes men around them no you don't want people that are just conforming to you you don't want someone in your executive team that's going to say oh yeah whatever you say i'm conforming to you you need someone that's an individual because they bring something unique and special to every situation that maybe you can't see. And that's one of the difficulties with kind of mass producing things, I think. I mean, you look at society in general, even just take churches. When we try to mass produce churches, and I guess disclaimer, there's nothing wrong with large numbers, with growth, with people coming in and being part of a congregation or a denomination or a church. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think we have to ask ourselves the question, are we setting those things up? And this would vary individually. Are we setting those things up based on an idea and a system of conformity or as unique individuals coming together in unity? How do you judge that? How, how do you determine, well, this is conformity. I'm not going to do it. This is unity, so I am going to do it. I think we've missed the point if we're doing that. Like if one person... If one group starts growing because it's connecting with people, I think it could be envy and strife on our side to want to tear that down. So th that there's that side of it. Then there's the one that doesn't feel like are comfortable being smaller or they're more unique or they're they're hitting a very specific range. 
And they're being criticized that they're not growing fast enough, so they're not good enough. I, I think we have to, in order for unity to truly come in, we have to remove all of these measurements, not just in church world, but in people's lives and people's functionality and people's goals and people's, all of this stuff, because there's personalities and there's so many different reasons why that happens. I think when we prop up, wow, this is successful because X, Y, and Z. So therefore, everyone tries to do X, Y, and Z in order to be that great thing. That's conformity. If, wow, they're more humble, they're more pure. See, they're just like this. They're, they're just this, whatever that measurement is. And it looks different. See, that's true unity. No, you can still be in conformity. And you don't know the motives. I mean, you could have a bunch of people that just can't get along with anybody. So there's only six of them that can meet because they found a group that they all just dislike everything together. Well, that's not unity. That's conformity too. You're only wrapping yourselves around people that are sharing your exact thoughts and mind and the power of disagreement. That isn't unity either. True unity comes when the individual is confident in who they are, secure in what they believe, strong in those thoughts, and can offer themselves to others. But those usually try to find ways to do crossover and bring more people into an idea. But there's always a bigger cause. So you look at Mordecai standing the way he did, and he worked at the king's gate. He was some kind of, of an official higher rank in the community. And there came a crossroad when Haman wanted to, him to bow to him like a god. And Haman knew this. It was almost like a provoking. And Mordecai absolutely would not do that because I'll have no other gods before me. When his core resonance finally was crossed by someone forcing conformity, I mean, come on, they lived for who knows how many years, like maybe two generations. I think it was his grandfather that was taken in as captive. So they lived under Persian rule and they functioned. They were going along. And the thing that was brought to um, the king the king of Persia was that there's a group of people who have a different law than yours. And that's what Haman went after. And so I'm only saying all that because even in trying to measure what's what, what group, we can take that in the Christian world. Oh, that's a conforming group. Oh, that's a unifying group. Oh, when are we going to come in one accord? Oh, that group, the divisions start, and it, it really becomes sad because there, there's a place I'm probably more comfortable with. There's a, there's a group of people I'm more comfortable in that environment, and I always have an opinion. Just like you have an opinion, someone else has an opinion. You just learned either not to say it or you learned when to say it. There, there, there's a difference, but we all have these different thoughts. So what can we use as kind of a frame of reference to, to try to figure some of this out because it's really easy on one hand to look at the things that are going on around us, whether it's in the world or how that's impacting churches and churches are reacting differently and what's the right way, what's the wrong way. It's really easy to look at that and kind of put a label on someone or some group saying, well, they're just conforming or, well, they're just being rebellious. So what is a good starting point for us to take to where we can internally look ourselves in the mirror and say, all right, am I looking at them and trying to get them to conform to my way of doing things or am I letting them 
express their individuality. They're in a unique situation, a unique circumstance that I may not fully understand and to be unified with them in it. When you know and have built your life on a conviction as an individual with a relationship with God and your, your heart is open to truth, that means sometimes you learn something that you're off on, sometimes you learn things you're on, you need other people around to, to listen to them and it kind of, it sharpens you, iron sharpens iron. You're, you're rubbing against each other, you're kind of, sometimes you grind on each other but there's, there's this sense of love. There's this sense of, I still love you. I may not always think the way you think, but I love you. And when that happens, you're willing to do things differently. Like think about kids. If you're, if you're a parent and has kids and there's any healthily mind in you, you love your kids. Sometimes we're learning how to best train them because our kids are just as unique. One doesn't look and act the way the other one looks and act. One kid, you might need to be a little bit more firm in an area. Another one you could just look at wrong and it's like it breaks them. And and you have these different dynamics. And so, but because I love my kids, I have to be willing to prepare them to be free. And I think one of the things that we've never been been maybe intentional about is how do we train our kids to be free? Thus, how do we train people around us to be free? Thus, if you're a manager at a job, how do you train your employee to be free? And if you're a, an officer, how do you train your, your soldiers to be free within the environments that they're in? How do you train them to be free? How do you train them to be competent and to think and to make decisions and know when to make the decisions and the timings and how to own their decisions? And I think I think one thing you brought up is we've we've lived kind of with a victim mentality so long that someone else is going to bail us out or someone else is going to own the responsibility that it's not your fault. We've lived with this lawsuit legal lawyerish way of culture that it's not our fault. There's always a way out of it. And it doesn't mean that thing you don't need mercy. It doesn't mean that grace, mercy's not there. It doesn't mean that uh, when something goes wrong, sometimes you just need a hand to help lift you up. But you can own that. And you and those choices, when we see like the two sons in the certain father, and it's often called the prodigal son, the one son makes the dumb decisions. But he comes back and recognizes that decision. The other son never, quote unquote, made a bad decision, but he had never knew what freedom was. He didn't even know how to access what had been given to him. He didn't even know how to function. So he blamed and he, he became envious of the one that knew freedom. This is a powerful truth, but they were both in the same home. They both had the same father and he had these two different thoughts. But sometimes I wonder if that father was incredibly wise because he didn't have to give the inheritance to the boys. But he did. He gave them the tools to be free. And both of them made bad choices. But it was an opportunity for them both to make the decision on their own. And that goes back to what you were mentioning in Romans if you, in chapter 15. But if you go back a few verses in chapter 14, as you and I were talking about earlier, it says the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. So is this something that is part of your conviction, your faith, and your feeling 
or is it something that's been outsourced to you by someone else? Or are you trying to outsource the decision and the responsibility to someone else that may know better than you? Like there's, there's definitely a context to that. And obviously I'm not saying that you should never seek counsel, never get advice from people. That's ridiculous. But at the end of the day, a decision has to be yours and you have to own it because you don't get to stand at the end of the decision and honestly say, well, they told me to do it. So the reason it didn't work out is because of them. No, it's, it's your decision. It's your faith. You need to own it. It needs to be your own conviction. And that can be, that can make for some, some conflict. I think when we're looking at conformity and unity, because a decision that I would make is not a decision that someone else is making in the moment. And maybe there's reasons for that, but it's their decision. It's their conviction that they are stepping out in because we see all these examples of people taking a certain action or not taking a certain action and it's easy to judge it, but it's on them. But how often do we sit there and say in our heads, well, I would have made a different decision and my decision would have been more correct. I mean, that's, that's kind of getting completely away from this whole idea of being unified together. And even if you were the right one, even if they were making a weak or a stupid decision, how are you bearing the scruples of that brother or sister? How are you elevating them and edifying them, even though they might be making that wrong decision? Wise counsel does not mean I'm going to someone to put my life back together again. Wise counsel is going and getting perspectives in areas that are necessary for you to make a decision. Wise counsel brings you back to you still making that decision. Wise counsel, like you were saying, isn't a transfer that they're now making that decision. Well, my counselor told me to. My counselor told me to. The whole idea of counsel came from the idea of you're a king. The king has a counsel. And, and there are in people in different fields and different areas that you trust to help bring perspective to the decision you're going to make. Their job is to bring the best perspective of the field that they're in. And the council brings all the pieces together, but then the, the decision maker has to make the decision. So when we read scripture, when we read characters, we're listening to those we take counsel from. But then there's your father. Your father knows you. You bear his image. You walk in him. And a good father will bring perspective and wants you to grow in those decisions in a safe environment where you could still be there to redeem. And that's what happened with the two sons. He was still there to redeem them. He was still there to restore them. But it was the younger son that had the absolute freedom to make any decision that they wanted that came back to the point of a more powerful, confident truth of judgment than the one that never actually left. And I think there's so much to that story, but one is the one who decided to conform to an ideal and became angry that the conformity didn't produce decisions that benefited him because he surrendered his decision-making process versus the other that just went nuts and became foolish, but came to the point going, these were dumb decisions. This brought me to this place. Now, I am not recommending coming to that place. I'm just saying, I think we shouldn't be so afraid of liberating people to make a decision. And our job who's strong, that have good scruples, 
I'm hoping I'm one of those, but I think there's other people stronger that I need their, their patients to work with my scruples, that they come in and recognize where we're trying to go. And rather than tell us where to go, they keep lifting us higher to see better. Hey, come up a little bit higher, you'll see better. Here, let me lift you to a higher place, you'll be able to see better. Can you see now? Can you see now? And that's what counsel does. It lifts you as an individual to see differently so then you can offer yourself to unite for something bigger. And that is such a powerful truth. But the enemy of our souls, tyranny, does not want that to happen. Because the moment the individual can choose, you've lost your power because your whole power was based on a manipulation not for the benefit of the people but the benefit you get from the mass and our job is not to get benefit from the mass our job is to lead from the front and and influence the individuals of the mass so they also can start being strong and standing on their own and offering themselves in unity and that's what Paul's talking about in Romans. He's dealing with food. But in Romans 15.1, he says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Lest let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So Paul wasn't saying you have to. He was saying, hey, if you're strong, if you're confident, if you're secure and know who you are, know where you're going, Nothing can stop your calling. Nothing can stop where you're going. So quit trying to make it happen. And now just serve the person that's right in front of you and offer your strength to their weakness. Lift them up. And in the end, you have all these strong people that are around you. And who you are now actually has a higher value, has a higher purpose. That's what a minister was for. A minister wasn't to be the top dog. The minister was actually to be the one who was strong enough to step down to lift the people so they could do the work of the ministry, so they can be the ones that are lifted, so they could be the ones that are going out, so they could be strong. That was really what the job was. And so it becomes real dangerous when you're like, well, some people's heart, if I follow my heart, I'm going to make dumb decisions. Yes, but if you keep, remember that last quote, the moment someone is free to leave, they become family. So you create ties. You help me here. I won't leave you behind. There becomes this exchange of relationship, not out of manipulation, but out of a bond. That, hey, I wouldn't ask you to do something that would hurt you. I'm going with you too. And all of a sudden you have this unifying force of individuals. If we're just conscripted and we're just a number in the big system, we can get more numbers. I have no value. My only value is to make you greater. But if my job was to lift each individual, then I'm creating bonds of family that is so much stronger and it can't be broken. You touched on fear, and I think that plays a much bigger role than we realize in our decision-making. I've seen it so many times in my life, in my past, and in other people's lives, even today, where the decisions are based on the fear of, if I make the wrong decision, then there's going to be consequences and problems. So I'm going to default to not making a decision or to just accepting whatever the conformity side of this situation is. And that is a big problem because then at the end of the day, you, you don't move. You are moved by the external situations and forces around you. But that's why 
everything in, in scripture and Christianity is such a beautiful thing because it says God can take all things and work them for good, which includes the wrong decisions that you will make. But it's so much better to make a wrong decision, learn from it, and walk with your father through it than to not make a decision at all. But I think that fear is what holds people back. And even more than that, I think the fear of people making wrong decisions is why we sometimes are afraid of giving people that kind of grace to make choices. Because if I accept their ability to make a choice on their own and they make a wrong one, I feel complicit in it somehow, but it's on them. In the same way that our decisions are on us. I make a decision tomorrow, I'm not gonna blame Brian if it turns out poorly. It's on me and that's the only real way that you get unity. Well, that touches in even to the military, why they do some of the, the hard training at the beginning. They, 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 you volunteer. Okay. You volunteer, you go into a special force and it is tough. It feels like conformity to the max. Like they are just ripping on you. You're a nothing. You're all of this, but their motive actually is not to break you. It's to get rid of your thinking and your fears and your self adoration to strip that away. So in the middle of conflict, you can think you can rationalize, you can make decisions, you can move forward, that you're not moved by all the emotions of, of our everyday life. It brings you to a place of not conformity, but actual power of an individual. Now, there's some things that you just learn, hey, this is how they do it. But those things are things that when you're in fear and when you're in stress and when you're in conflict, those become more natural so you can think about the bigger things. They get the mundane things into normal so you can think bigger. You don't want to have to worry about when all the battle's going on and you go to shoot and your gun's all rusty. So everybody's always, you know, whatever their the little training is. Those become normal so you can make bigger decisions, so you can uh, do greater things. And I know there's there's sides of this coin. I'm just trying to pick one example to show someone whose heart is filled with love and passion towards the brother next to him and for the cause that would free people. And Paul utilizes this with Timothy. And sometimes he's telling him to do these hard things, and you're, and you're like, but I thought we were under grace. Why does he have to do that? Because Paul's not dealing with someone who's a slave. He's dealing with a son. Son, here's, what, here's how this looks. Here's how this is going to feel. Just endure this for a while, and then step over here, and here's what's going to happen, and here's how you lift. And Paul and and Timothy walked in fulfillment of who he was. And so all these pieces sometimes play together. But I'm telling you, we're in a day and age where we've been taught so to conform, not to own our decision, so much group thought. In fact, we don't even think most of the time. We're just told what to think. I mean, the news wouldn't be a problem to us if we just had some rationale to pick through a main point they're trying to get to, and then we start researching it ourselves and we find out the truth. Since when did we ever let them become the truth tellers? And it's, it's, it's become sad that we've surrendered our way of thinking that has created a beast. And in a lot of sense, it goes back to that Gulag Archipelago when Alexander uh, Schnelznitzen says, I came to the point when all this stuff had happened to me and all of it was bad and it was you know just evil. He was a victim of it. But when I could find something that I could choose, and I realized it wasn't the evil that took over the people, it was that the people gave it over to evil.
And so he took the responsibility back and it became a big shift. And we have great people that know how to conform to whatever makes them feel good at the time. But to be an individual doesn't have anything to do with your feelings. Being an individual is I just won't violate the core of what I am. And this is where I need to go. And learning how to own that and take that responsibility and do it in a way that lifts others but could stand in the face of something and knowing when to and when not to and begin to see the differences. To have a mindset where you have completely outsourced your responsibility to the world or to the systems that are put in front of you is really an abdication of your identity because it's not you making the decision. It's not you making a choice. It's you doing what you're told. And, and obviously there's, there's so much context to that. And there's, we're not going to spend time going down all those. Well, what about this? And what about that? We're just trying to establish the principle here of you're not meant to conform. You're meant to be an individual that stands united with others, but there are times where you're going to have to stand apart. And that's what you see really throughout all, all of history is it takes an individual to make a stand on something that they believe and to be able to hold to it. How did Stalin build a world the way he did? How did Lenin build a world the way he did? How did Chairman Mao build a world the way he did? As he started influencing the thoughts of the mass until they became embittered to something else. How as believers, or how does a righteous man influence? They stand in their conviction and sometimes silently and will not bend to an idea. And it becomes so transparent, it becomes physical. And as they speak, people have seen and acted and they share the cause because they're not looking at the specific thing you're standing. They see the cause of the thing. They see where they fit into it and how it will affect them if this goes a different direction. And they unite, but the person that's causing the inspiration is not making everybody think the exact same way or to uh, change everything about them to become just like them. They're, they're, they're a cause together that they're moving forward in. And guess what? There's disagreements among them. There's, it doesn't always have to look the same, but the, there's something bigger. And it's because love is the bond. I love that person enough to fight for him. I love that person enough to fight for him. Doesn't matter what it costs me. I'm willing to fight for them because I love that person. That is something that conformity cannot deal with. It breaks tyranny. The moment love over for someone over your own life takes place, it breaks it. That's why Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, and a man lay down his life for a friend. The real core relationship between God and man was a uniting relationship that came through Jesus Christ, where you can know your father, where you came from, and have his thoughts. That is at the core of this. And when that is a solid piece, there is times where humanity creates laws, creates ideas that contradict what you were designed for. And so there becomes the importance of the individual to stand and to voice and to speak and to make decisions. And we again, we can never look back, just like Paul said in Romans, that uh, Romans 14, 12, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. We can never say this person said this, this person said this. At some point, you have to give an account to yourself. But when that becomes secure, it's not a, a place of 
enmity and anger towards someone else and we become mad at another group so we're going to we're going to become mad at those individuals for the way they're thinking no we we can have a hostility towards the spirit behind the group we can have a hostility towards the concept behind it but the individual is still an individual that's lost in that and so we once you become confident and you experience the main thing God wanted to bring us was his love towards us and his passion towards us and his uniting of us with him, we begin looking at everyone that he created with the same passion. And we begin looking at everyone from the light of how he's treated us. So we're no longer looking at how do we win an argument? How do we uh, just stand for injustice when there is a time to stand for it? But we're not doing it out of malice. We're doing it out of a deep love for those being hurt by it and those that are being blinded by it, it, on both sides of that. And so we take the stand, and we're willing to take the hits to make a stand to break that cycle. And so when I'm talking about all this, if the love is not the motive of doing it, you're still walking in either a rebellion or a conformity to either way. It's still within that same mindset. But throughout Scripture, God has always looked at the individual. He's always admonished the individual. He's always developed the individual, and he recognizes each person's time and space and what's going on in their environments and who they are to it. And if you grew up in a country that's been under communism, your response is going to be different than you grew up in America where freedom was our platform. Remember, the kingdom of God is universal. It's not It's not a one-dimensional, it's not a one-country thinking. Now, some Places have adopted more of that philosophy, but within that, you still have fallen people that are always working to manipulate and to trick and to do do those kind of things. You find it even in, not within the body of Christ, but within some of the institutions that represent them, it it still goes on. But the point of that, I mean, even Jesus had uh, Judas Iscariot that got mad that Jesus was receiving the oil from Mary, that he we could have sold that and fed the poor. And then the next verse it says, because he had been stealing from the box and he wanted the money for himself. I mean, Jesus had among his close circles someone who always was manipulating and getting people to conform and shaming them for doing an action because they wanted benefit. So if we could free ourselves as individuals and become secure in the grace of God of who we are, that we're loved by him, our decisions won't be based on self-interest. They'll be based on other people's interest. And that is where the heart of unity comes in. And at times you will give up things that you like for the sake of someone else. That is not conformity. But the moment someone comes and tries to extract that from you, this is why Jesus said, if they come and take your coat, give them your jacket also. If they tell you to walk one mile, walk two. If they tell you, if they slap you on one side of the cheek, give them the other side. What does it do? Is you're constantly saying to that person, no matter what you try to take from me, I'm going to outgive you and give more. And that does something. It shifts the, it shifts the spiritual force. It, it shifts your position towards the force that is against you, not against the individual, but against the force that's against you. And so when we can see all these applications, and then there was times that Jesus out of independence goes in and overturns the money changers and faces the, the, the Pharisees and the oppression of tyranny and conformity that they were shifting onto the people. And he stood at it face to face and spoke to it and spoke against it and acted 
in a manner that was contrary to the man-made rules that were created, but he never compromised who he was and his purpose and his identity. And at times he stood alone and at times gathered people gathered around him. But even in that, he never looked at his value from who gathered. He looked at his values, who he was. And once that is the heartbeat of our mindset, you become a powerful force in everything that you're in. And conformity is counter to that. That's going to do it for this week, everybody. We appreciate you listening in. And I just want to give you one more encouragement. The world needs people to be unified as individuals. It's got plenty of conformity. It needs people to rise up and be unified. And we need that in the church more than ever, and we need that in the world more than ever. So keep that in mind as you're faced with all these decisions in the coming weeks that you haven't had to make before. So it's not an easy thing to do, but you can do it. Your father's there to walk with you through it. He's not waiting for you on the other side to make the right decision. He's with you. So include him in the decision-making process. That's what I want to leave you with. Um, As always, you guys can comment on the podcast. You can catch us on social media if you've got things you want to bring up. And we will be back next week to do this all again.